Welcome to the death panel. Today, we have a very special bonus interview with virologist Paul Binash. If you've listened to Monday's patron episode, we talked about all the proposals to tinker with the vaccine dose schedule for COVID and how disastrous that could be. Dr. Binash is one of the people whose statements I referenced in that episode, and I was lucky enough to get a chance to sit down with him to talk about it. So we hope you enjoy. And if you want to hear the panel talk about the political and policy implications from this interview, support us on patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to unlock Monday's episode and a whole lot more. Um, Alrighty. Shall we just dive in? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so we have a really special interview for you. I am joined today by virologist Dr. Paul Binash, professor and investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and head of the Laboratory of Retrovirology at Rockefeller University. Dr. Binash's specialty is in the biology and evolution of viruses, including HIV-1 and host virus interactions. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Do you prefer Paul or or doctor? <laughs> oh, certainly Paul. You okay, know, let's perfect. keep it informal. So I know your background is in HIV, but you've been working on SARS-CoV-2 since the pandemic, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, yes, I've been working on HIV for oof, all of my academic career, which is, I guess, nearly 30 years now. But of course, when, when SARS-CoV-2 came to town, um, a large fraction of the virology community sort of pivoted. You know, when there's an emergency like this, if you have skills to bring to bear on the problem, you you almost mm. have to um, change direction a little bit. Of course. Um, so on, on New Year's, you posted a, what I'm going to call a, um, it's not a manifest, it's like a short sarcastic memo um, on Twitter called Musings of an Anonymous Pissed Off Virologist. Uh, which was your response to uh, your very serious concerns with the current state of the vaccine rollout, especially the decision made by the UK to alter the vaccination schedule as it was studied. Um, stuff like stretching out doses, allowing for brand mixing. Um, of course, all of these are not methods that were tested in the clinical trial. And the idea that the UK government uh, says is the reasoning behind this is that they want to try and vaccinate everyone as quickly as possible. But uh, as you point out, this is not necessarily a good idea. Um, these moves that the UK is making are actually kind of worrisome, in your opinion. Uh, do you think you could explain uh, what your worry is here? Yes. So um, maybe it may be to help if I spend just a couple of minutes explaining what we've been doing here at Rockefeller. Um, yeah. Because it impinges on that. So uh, as you know, um, around March time, New York was sort of the epicenter of the epidemic. And a group of us here at Rockefeller got together um, to essentially bring up, brought our skills together to develop uh, monoclonal antibodies as therapy. Um, in much the same way as you've probably heard about the Regeneron and Lilly uh, types of therapeutics. Mm -hmm. We have a skill set here that would enable us to do that. And we've done that. And those antibodies are going into clinical trial in the next um, couple of weeks. But as part of that process, we, we thought it was very important to start thinking about resistance to antibodies. That's important, not just from the point of view of therapeutics, but also from the point of view of uh, vaccines. So we've been studying resistance to antibodies for some months now. Um, and so when, when you try to generate viruses that are resistant to antibodies in the laboratory, uh, what you do is you 
build in the laboratory a large, diverse population of viruses, and you mix it with um, varying amounts of antibody, and then you put it into a cell culture, and then you see what grows out. And the variants that you've made in your diverse population inevitably are the ones that grow out. And you learn about how the antibodies work, what parts of the virus they're recognizing when you do experiments like that. And it it just struck me that what we were doing in the laboratory had significant parallels to the way um, certain Western governments, certain Western populations had handled this pandemic, mm -hmm. essentially failing to control the diversification of the virus. Um, and then once you have a vaccine that elicits antibodies that in principle should protect us against uh, the virus, then a decision's made not to use them at full strength, as it were, <laughs> but rather to give people suboptimal vaccine dosing. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it occurred to me, it, if, as we do in the laboratory, I wanted to make an antibody-resistant virus, but instead I wanted to do it in the population of humans in the UK or the US, this is how I would do it. I'm sorry to laugh. It's not funny, <laughs> but it's funny in a tragic way. Yes. So I wrote that very sarcastic. I was really quite angry when I wrote that. Thing. Understandably. I didn't intend to put it on social media. I intended to circulate it to a few professional colleagues, but I showed it to my wife who works with me. She, she and I work together on these um, issues. She said, yeah, you should put that on Twitter. I said, you sure? Yeah. Okay. But I'll, I'll say it's anonymous, but it's not really anonymous. And, and so I did. And uh, there's been quite a response to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating. I'm, I have an autoimmune disease. I'm on a monoclonal antibody therapy. Uh, I'm on uh, rituxan. So this is mm -hmm. something I've actually followed your work just because I'm, I'm fascinated with people who work on antibodies and it's like a spectator sport for me. And when I saw this pop up in your feed, it, it really made me reconsider the magnitude of, of these mistakes that are happening in the UK and the US, which are quite obviously to uh, the average layman or spectator, like mistakes. But I think your your anonymous sarcastic letter gave me a better idea of sort of the gravity of what biologically was potentially going on um, as a result of these mistakes. So do you think you could explain what is going on in the population right now because of this unmitigated, uncontrolled spread that's being managed through, uh, as you said, like a piecemeal vaccination program that's not full strength? and um, also kind of arbitrary and inconsistent non-pharmaceutical intervention uh, implementation. Right. So, the, I mean, the situation is, is, is very complicated. And um, while I have an opinion about how the vaccines should be rolled out, that is at, at, at full strength, I do have to be a little humble and say, what the consequences of this changed um, vaccine rollout would be are really quite unpredictable. Yeah. It, it might very well be, it could very well be that if one dose is protective for, for three months um, in a large fraction of people, then that, that, that was the right thing to do. Um, the issue is we, at this point, we simply don't know. 
Right. We know we know that two doses give 95% protection from the clinical trial. We just don't know what would happen in those that three-month delay between the first dose uh, and the second dose. Now, it's not simply that the best way to use the vaccines is uncertain at this point. One has to look at that in the context of what's gone before. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if you want to select a vaccine-resistant strain, um, going back to what we do in the lab and what's happening in nature, uh, in the human population, that maximizing the, the, the size and diversity of the viral population is, is pretty key to selecting those vaccine-resistant strains. And to achieve that in the human population, you just have to look at the catalog of failures over the last 10, 12 months um, that certain governments have, I would say, been guilty of. Now, if we, if we were talking about Australia or New Zealand, where there's very little virus, the situation would be totally different. Right. Okay? They can effectively vaccinate their population on whatever sh- a schedule is optimal. And that's because they, they already have the reduced uh, community spread. They've, they've kept their cases under control versus the US and UK, which uh, have, have not, to put it plainly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so... So we know now that there are viral strains that are quite a bit different to the strains that came to us a year ago, circulating in the UK, circulating in South Africa. They have changes that um, some people, some scientists believe make them more transmissible. Um, it's also certainly possible that those changes in those variant strains that are circulating are the first steps down the road to um, vaccine resistance. Hmm. So when when somebody's vaccinated, um, they're going to generate lots of different antibodies um, that attack the spike protein, the protein on the outside of the virus. And the antibodies themselves actually attach to the spike protein. And and when you look at where those mutations are, or these changes that appear in these variant viruses, they they look like they're just in the right places where antibodies would bind. So Mm. I'm suspicious that um, some of the evolutionary steps towards vaccine resistance have already been taken by these variant strains that are now at extraordinarily high prevalence in countries like the UK and South Africa, it to me is exactly the wrong moment to start rolling out vaccine in a half-hearted or half-measured half-measured way, I should say. It seems like an extraordinary amount of risk to take on. Just from my perspective, it seems like an extraordinary amount of risk with uh I've seen some people say, well, the AstraZeneca vaccine, they had manufacturing delays. And as a result, you know, a very small fraction, like tiny, tiny fraction of those patients got it three months and later and they were fine. And uh, to me, that is uh, not nearly enough evidence to justify replicating it at a large scale, let alone replicating it outside of a clinical trial where you um, are doing it on the general population 
and not necessarily, I mean, in the UK, maybe through their uh, NHS, they're able to monitor a little bit better. They obviously have better uh, infrastructure for centralizing that data than we have in the US. But it just seems like um, one of the more risky, bad decisions that we've made so far in the pandemic. Yes. So I, I could accept the argument for doing trials of modifying the, the vaccine right. regimen, right? But but typically you would do that to measure things like immunogenicity first. Um, you know, the, the accidents, as it were, that have occurred in the AstraZeneca trial that give these small subgroups where there appears to be increased efficacy. You know, that might be true, but I, I have to say I'm just a little suspicious about um, at least some of the data I have seen where just a, a change in case numbers of two or three in either direction could have quite large effects on the measured efficacy of that those vaccine regimens. I have to say I haven't seen yet seen data yet for the for the subgroup that was immunized at time point one and then again um, 12 weeks later. That's that again was a sort of an, an accident of of vaccine um, supply. Now, I do want to think about the the other side of the argument. So, some of some colleagues in the field would say, "Well, what you're worried about is um, resistance to to um, the antibodies that are generated by these vaccines," and that's a very complicated evolutionary procedure, and perhaps. The, the opposing view goes, is we shouldn't try to manage that because it's going to happen anyway. We should just try to immunize as many people as possible. Now, that that's a, a defensible position and something that could be debated, um, but it's just not one that I hold and not one I think we should be experimenting with on the, the entire UK population. Yeah, I mean, so... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so by giving people only one dose, say, uh, let's say we we vaccinate everyone in the UK. I mean, we couldn't do that with what we have on hand. But let's say we vaccinate a large portion of the population. We use all of our available stock for that first round. We run into a manufacturing delay, which is totally possible. And it takes a while to vaccinate or get that second batch ready to run the second round of vaccinations. And I think that definitely you could you could argue there's a likelihood that even less people will get that second dose if, if so much time elapses. And there's news stories about manufacturing delays are not going to encourage uh, people to get the vaccine. It'll do exactly the opposite. So es essentially, you're going to have a large segment of the population who will have only uh what we're seeing in the data to be a, a less extreme immune response because the first dose does a little bit and then the second dose seems to give you that, that sort of lasting immune memory that's going to protect you in the future. So, so what is it about just exposing the virus to only a little bit of antibodies or only you know giving the body only a little bit of vaccine that, that, that could set this process in motion? Right. So, so the the key key issue here is that let let's take the Pfizer Pfizer vaccine as an example. We mm -hmm. know from their clinical trial that that one dose is pretty strongly protective for um, the first twenty one days, or to be more precise, between about ten or twelve days 
and 21 days when you're supposed to get the second dose. The, mm-hmm. the protection already seems pretty strong. But what we also know is that the levels of antibodies and immune response aren't anywhere near where they would be after 21 days when you get got your second shot. So whenever one is immunized um, with a vaccine, the initial response grows, peaks, and then it gradually decays away. Now, after your second shot, okay, you, you're decaying from a level that's probably 50, 100-fold higher than it is from, from the first shot. Mm-hmm. So you have... In a, a one-shot immunized population, you have a lower level of immunity that it, that is slowly decaying away, and you really don't know at what point they're going to become susceptible to infection. Now, the key thing to for those people to essentially be dangerous uh, and put selective pressure on the virus to enrich for antibody-resistant mutations is if those people can become infected, okay, mm. They have some antibody that puts a selective pressure on the on the virus. The virus diversifies within the infected person. And if you have a little bit of, of antibody, it can, in principle, um, suppress the antibody-sensitive uh, ver- variants in that population at the expense of the antibody-resistant uh, variants in that population. And so the antibody-resistant uh, variants in the, the virus population in that person become the dominant strains. Now, if that person has enough virus then to pass the virus on to somebody else, okay, then they're very much more likely to pass on an antibody resistant strain or a strain that's at least partially acquired uh, resistance to antibodies. It's really Darwinian evolution, right? <laughs> you put selective pressure. It, it, it's, it's really no different. It, Darwinian evolution acts on viruses on exactly the same way that it acts on, on every other living organism. It's just <laughs> the particular properties that you're selecting for. Right. Um, so we're essentially, we would be backing it into a corner and then teaching it how to try and replicate basically, because it wouldn't be as strong of an immune response. So the likelihood that it would have the opportunity to try and learn from the antibodies it's being exposed to, um, that in effect could uh, incentivize the virus to become resistant to the the vaccine's produced antibodies. Is that correct? That's pretty much correct. Okay. um, (laughs) What we as virologists try not to to do is anthropomorphize the virus. The virus can't think, it can't get backed into a corner, it can't make plans for itself. It's just throwing out variants and then we're sieving them by um, virtue of the immune responses that we, we, uh, we put against it. We're not creating fine enough of a sieve with only one shot potentially. That, that's a reasonable analogy, yes. Okay, okay, cool. Just, you know, I'm just checking. I yeah. compared the mRNA vaccine to Ikea flat pack furniture the other day. Uh, so, you know, just trying yeah. to make sure that yeah. my metaphors are on point. I'll stay with inanimate Got objects. It. Got no, that's fine. I anthropomorphize the virus <laughs> myself, too. It, it behaves as if it as if it has intention. It obviously doesn't have intention. <laughs> um all right, so this this selection pressure basically you're you're concerned that we are creating the kind of conditions 
that could make this type of mutation or change in the virus's response to antibodies more likely. And we're also doing it in a way that is uncontrolled and not going to produce data that's usable for scientific study necessarily the way that we would if we were doing it during a clinical trial setting where we had monitoring from start to finish intentional collection of data. You know, you have questions you're asking going in versus I feel like the real disadvantage here is this is like starting an experiment but not having a hypothesis. Yes. So whatever the outcome of this um, experiment in immunization, we're, we're not really going to know. Uh, it, well, we might know if other countries do it differently and something very different happens. But it, uh, that's not, a, that not really a controlled comparison. We're not really going to know what the effect of this um, change in, in policy is going to be. Um, we're just going to have to wait and see how it plays out, right? Um, <laughs> now, it's it's entirely possible that these antibody-resistant variants would arise anyway. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's likely that they're going to arise anyway. But I think by changing the immunization schedule, we just might accelerate the process. You know, there are going to be... Uh, people who are incompletely immunized, people who don't respond well to the vaccine, or people who have one shot and then just don't show up for the second. Um, There's going to be some of those anyway. And so there's always going to be some uh, some chance that the virus is going to encounter um, a suboptimal immune environment and and in so doing evolve, evolve to acquire antibody resistance. That there's a, there is one other point I, I do think is quite important to make, is that these mutations, as they arise, each individual one probably isn't going to cause catastrophic vaccine failure. Right. Rather, what they would do is, is gradually erode the efficacy uh, of the vaccine. And it might be a year, two years from now, we need to change the vaccine what what I'm a little concerned about with this change in policy is that we might have to change the vaccine before we've even gotten the first generation of vaccine uh, to everybody. That's really the sort of the worst the worst case scenario. Yeah, that's my um, worry. <laughs> it's it's quite likely over the long term that the efficacy of the vaccine is going to wane anyway. Um, it's just I don't think we should be doing doing whatever we can to help the process. Yeah. And the, 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 other, the other thing that's a little disappointing to me is that sort of the documents that I've read that um, groups talking about making this decision, it appears to me they, they didn't really even consider the possibility of, of vaccine-resistant strains uh, when they came to that decision. Wow. At least there's no evidence of that in the, in the documentation. Obviously, I don't know what... what um, what was said behind closed doors, because unlike the US FDA, these decisions in the UK are not made in public. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, it's one of the things you uh, I, I can't remember if it's in your original piece or if it was in a, a comment to uh, Stat News, but you you talked about how also there is sort of this problem of 
we're not necessarily starting a vaccination program off on the right foot. Uh, you mentioned that we're already sort of at this level of community spread, that this is already not necessarily the ideal scenario for trying to vaccinate a population. Can you explain that point for a second? Yeah. So that that's that's really the 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 size and diversity of the population on which this the selection is, is acting. Um, if you if you just think about the total number of viral variants that are circulating, for example, in the UK. It's a, a mind-boggling number. <laughs> I, I don't think I can even come close to, to estimating it. Right. And then you use that number alongside a number, um, what we would call the mutation rate, how often the virus makes changes to its genome. When you put those two numbers together, it's it's trivially easy to come to the conclusion that every single possible mutation that the virus could make has been made and it is being made in the UK, perhaps in every person every day. Um, and so you're, you're creating this huge, huge level of genetic diversity um, and a huge population size on, on which uh, selection can act. Now, if on the other hand, you're in New Zealand, Australia, where there's no one infected, mm -hmm. there's no selection going on. You know, when a single virus is introduced into that population, as one person arrives on a, on a flight from a prevalent area, um, depending on what the diversity was in that particular area, um, then... There's much less scope for for the virus to explore explore diversity, mm. and so in a sense, what we're potentially doing by allowing the virus to grow and diversify is these policies could have ramifications not just for the UK but for the entire world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's my that's my biggest worry, and um, I'm especially concerned. I know that the UK just announced that they are going to stop in-person learning for schools until February, finally. But right. in the United States, they are still, um, we are still planning on, on moving forward with trying to get people in the classroom as much as possible. In your, in your sarcastic memo, you talk about schools and the roles, the role that children are playing in this. And more importantly, I think the way that people are talking about school infections. Do you think maybe as a final a final topic. Could I get you to weigh in on the school reopening debate? Yes, you could. It is something I've grappled with personally. It it hits quite close to home because I have two preteen kids uh, in my household. We live in a small apartment. Um, you know, I, I have a son who's coped with it, this quite well. He likes spending time on the computer. And I also have a daughter who, who it's clear that she she misses her friends and she's suffering socially from it. So I, I see it from from the side of a parent as well. But um, ultimately, I I come down on the side of the virologist, um, where I think we should have been more aggressive in closing schools. It's it's just. Some of the, the data that's out there that says that, that children don't transmit the virus as, as efficiently as adults, it's been very unclear whether that is a, 
an epidemiological difference. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, because the kids have been kept at home, they don't transmit the virus as much versus a, a biological difference. And I don't really see any, any real evidence for a, a biological difference. So you, you'll read articles in the New York Times saying, oh, young children don't transmit the, the virus, <laughs> right? Well, of course they don't if they're kept at home. And <laughs> you'll, see, you'll see other statements. Well, the school, the, all the evidence suggests that it's, it's safe to send your children to school. Well, in New York City, uh, only about 10% of the children have been going to school. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yes, if, if one-tenth of the kids go to school, then, yeah, it's pretty safe if, you, you know, they sit a long distance apart and, and wear their face mask. But that's not really schools opening in, in the sense that I understand it with, with children mixing together and, and enjoying school life as they ordinarily would. And just to veer way outside of my expertise here into sort of the, the, the policy implications, because I've, you know, I've experienced it firsthand. The amount of effort that's gone into keeping in New York City schools open for 10% of the kids, while the other 90% are doing their remote online learning, it mm -hmm. clearly diverted a lot of the educational effort disproportionately to the kids attending school. And so, um, you know, the other 90% of the kids who, by staying home, have effectively made the schools a lot safer, um, have, have suffered as a result. And so I, my view as a parent and as a virologist would be that there should have been way more effort put, in, put into effective, safe online learning. Um, mm -hmm. um, because... Again, as a virologist, I, I, and I accept there are counter arguments, you know, there are other people Always. have other views, but as a virologist, I want to stomp on this virus as hard as I can and cutting off every route of transmission, be it young kids or um, any, any group, restaurant goers, I think anything you can do to limit that, limit the spread of the virus limit the population, the viral population size, limit the genetic diversity that it can explore, mm -hmm. has, has to be um, beneficial in terms of getting things like vaccines to be effective long-term. Right. So, uh, the one thing I've learned from living with a, a rare autoimmune disease for 10 years is that you don't really need that much to go wrong with the immune system to be in pretty serious trouble. And it just feels like we're not taking into account the actual potential long-term impacts of allowing this to spread unchecked. And we're making decisions to prioritize the economy, prioritize keeping things open, um, established norms of our society, right? Preventing panic. But th at the end of the day, that's resulting in, in a lot of misinformation, a lot of difficulty in interpreting the information that's out there, a lot of confusion about what's going on. And then, um, you know, we have these public policies, which are largely arbitrary and not really based on recommendations from people like, like you, <laughs> who are who are interested in saying, okay, how do I how do I uh, 
look at what's going on and respond to the case numbers and make yeah. my goal to be bringing the case numbers down. Instead, we have, okay, well, we have a spending, uh, we have a number in mind and we don't want to go over that number on the stimulus bill. So we're going to just work on this number that's that we've pulled out and make sure it doesn't add to the deficit or whatever. Yeah. Um, and no one is stopping to think like, how much money do we need to spend to bring cases down to zero? Yeah. Right. Yes. And to be fair, a, a virologist like me has a has a particular perspective, but I also can't give policy advice that is that is rock solid. Okay, we're we're in a new situation here, and the best way forward has has lots of uncertainties attached to it. But but I think we can look at countries in Asia and Australia, New Zealand. Look how they've dealt with it. Um, you know, they imposed um, quite draconian limits on people's freedom. But mm -hmm. who's more free now? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And I think this is going to be a really important conversation because I, I think for all the fear mongering about this, you know, B117 being the new UK variant and it's more infectious or more transmissible. So now we need to lo lock down now. It kind of ignores the stuff that we should actually be scared about and actually try and fear and plan for. Yes. So, yes. Well, um, let's hope things will be okay. I, d I don't want people to go away from this, this conversation being incredibly fearful about um, what's coming down the road. Uh, the vaccines are still going to work for some time so it, oh, it's yeah. not it's not going to be an immediate um catastrophic vaccine failure in all likelihood um but i i i do think we could have done things different to make these vaccines more effective for a longer period of time yeah i mean it's such important technology especially the fact that these these mrna vaccines have been so successful so much more than i think most people could have even imagined. Um, I know a lot of people were saying like, oh, I'll be really happy if it hits like 70% efficacy. I've never heard of a vaccine hitting like 95 or 90 whatever percent. Um, it really just seems like it's a little too important to mess this, yeah. this up. Uh, and perhaps the most important thing to say is that the vaccines are safe. And for now, mm -hmm. they are effective and people absolutely should get vaccinated. It's really important, not just for themselves, but for everybody. Mm -hmm. Especially, I mean, we are we are 100,000% pro-vaccination here at the death panel. It's, I, it's really important. Um, uh, where can people find you? Oh, well, uh, I guess... Um, I have a few more Twitter followers now than I did a couple of days ago. <laughs> so yes, um, at Paul B. Nash, um, I guess your show notes will have my name, but yes, capital, I will. capital P, capital B, all one word. Um, I, I don't tweet very much, but um, I tried to keep it pithy and sometimes a bit sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you very much. It's very nice to talk to you. Take care.